is everywhere. It shows up in big places. It shows up in small places. Do you see it? Are you looking for it? You see, in the world we live in, the goodness of God is often hard to see because of the wickedness that prevails, because of the trials that we undergo, because of the ravaging of the wicked, the ravaging of God's people, the mockery that we undergo. It is hard often to see the goodness of God, leading us often to be anxious about our life situation. This morning, I want you to rest your anxious thoughts, for the Lord's recompense is thorough. Psalm 94 is where we're at this morning. We'll read the first part of this text. Psalm 94, starting in verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I spent 11 days in the hospital with our baby Emmeline. Eight days of it was in the ICU. And we want to thank you for praying for us. Certainly was a difficult time, but God was working in that, teaching us things. And it's really cool to see God's hand, his goodness in small things. There was a slushy machine there. <laughs> Jordan and I were excited about that. But it certainly was a hard time. And eight days in the ICU, seeing your seven-week-old with a breathing tube is difficult. She's home now. God is good. And as we moved out of the ICU into one of the normal rooms, I sat there and just started thinking about how God was answering your prayers, how God was answering my prayers, and her health was progressing. And as I got to thinking and verbally thanking God, thank you, Lord, for answering our prayers. There was a small voice that creeped into my head and said, was, was it really God? That voice sounded so familiar. It sounded a lot like the serpent's voice in the garden and that said, has God really said that you will die? You see, Satan and the wicked love a good inductive argument. An inductive argument is where even if both premise are true, the conclusion is not guaranteed. You see, in my situation, it would have gone something like this. My situation was improving, and I prayed about it. Conclusion? God was answering my prayers. Satan's reply, is that really God? In Psalm 94, we have an imprecatory psalm where the psalmist is imprecating the wicked to God. In other words, the psalmist is uttering a curse to the wicked. This is not schadenfreude. Brian used that word once before on a Sunday night. I love that word. 
It's a German word, schadenfreude, is where someone takes pleasure in someone else's misfortune. An imprecatory psalm is not that. It is uttering a curse against the wicked, but it is not taking pleasure against someone's misfortune. Nor is this type of psalm revenge. The psalmist is not seeking revenge in order to be vindicated. The psalmist is realizing that there is injustice in the world and it needs to be corrected. The legitimacy of this type of psalm is because of who the psalmist is calling to. You see, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Revenge, where we are trying to correct injustice, is never legitimate. But since the psalmist is calling to the Lord for justification, calling to the Lord for correction of injustice, we find legitimization in this type of psalm. The first point today, the ravaging of the wicked cast doubt in the hearts of believers. We have a twofold enemy. We have physical unbelievers who oppose God and the spiritual forces behind unbelievers. Ephesians 6, 2 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces in this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Although our battle is spiritual, Satan indeed does have his henchmen. The wicked are comprised of those who do not believe God or his ways. You see, the wicked live as if God does not see. They act as atheists or, even worse, as deists. It's not just always that they don't recognize a God. The wicked often recognize a God and think he doesn't see or care. They kill babies without fear of reprisal. They objectify women and then wonder why they are abused. Many countries kill Christians by the thousands for their beliefs. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The wicked vaunt their wicked lifestyle. To vaunt is to be boastful or proud. The old English term here would be profligate, someone who is shamelessly immoral. They boast about it. This constant denial of God wears the believer down. We long for the day when the people of God will no longer be mocked, when our fear of God will be the norm, and each man will not have to say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for everyone will know the Lord in that day. We long for the day when God himself will no longer be mocked. The hope of of the believer is that our God, our Lord, is a God of vengeance. He is legitimized in recompense because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, it is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, and he will say, where are their gods? 
the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and for his people. Swift judgment will be the plight of the wicked. Meekness is a character trait that our God has and one that implies he is a God of swift judgment. You see, meekness is not weakness, but rather power under control. The Lord is so long-suffering, but unleashes his judgment at just the right time and with just the right force. The biggest case in point is at the cross. He holds it for just the right time and unleashes his judgment with just the right force. Additionally, at the second coming, he is very long-suffering with us right now. In Revelation 18, 8, for this reason, and one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. The psalmist calls for the God of vengeance to shine forth, saying in verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth. The psalmist is calling to the Lord for a legitimate form of jihad, a legitimate form of holy war. In verse 3, the prolonged exaltation of the wicked without correction leads the believer to distress, driving him to say, how long shall the wicked exalt? This refrain indicates deep distress, this doubling of the sentence. All generations have wrestled with the existence of evil, the pursuit of theodicy, which is this reconciliation of divine goodness and the presence of evil. And I think it's a pursuit that will always be on. I don't think we'll fully be able to quite reconcile the two because God is mysterious. But whatever the reason God has, in addition to glorifying himself through it, we know that theodicy as it is today, the reconciling of evil and good, will not always be the way it is. You see, the vengeance of God, God's judgment at the end, where he finally separates the wheat from the chaff, is what satisfies this unsettling thought of theodicy. In verse 5, they crush your people, they afflict your heritage. Satan has been attacking the heritage of God since Genesis 3, with the serpent fighting against the seed of the woman. And it is the heritage of God are his elect. Job in the Old Testament was afflicted by Satan. We see John the Baptist and even Jesus afflicted by the religious crowd. All of God's leaders are tested. The enemies of God also oppress those who are already oppressed. They slay the widow and the stranger. They murder the orphan. And we know that God cares for the little ones, right? He said, it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and to be cast into the sea than to offend one of these little ones. January 22, 1984 
Ronald Reagan instituted for the first time the Sanctity of Human Life Day, which is this Wednesday, I believe. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And at that point, it was the 11th anniversary of the 1973 Roe v. Wade, legitimizing, legalizing abortion. Notice, though, that in his distress, the psalmist calls to the Lord. Who better to call on than the Lord? He has all the capacities needed to be able to help. He has all the knowledge that never limits his understanding. He has all the goodness required to pay attention to the details. Why do we go horizontal when our God has all that we need? The wicked ultimately fall under the illusion of autonomy, self-law. I have no need for God. Our enemies are deceived. They have said the Lord does not see. No penalty or punishment will come even if he knows. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The wicked subhuman behavior betrays them in arrogance. The denial of God is not only subhuman, but subanimal. Because an ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Thankfully, the people of God are not as blind as the wicked. Thankfully, the people of God do not struggle with the fear of the Lord. Or do they? The people of God would feel a lot better if Isaiah had cut that verse short. Because it ends with, my people do not understand. My people do not know. Often those who understand the least about who God is are those who profess to be so closely associated with him. The outside unbelieving world is indeed a threat to the people of God, and they are oppressive. But there is even a greater threat to our communion with God. Our biggest threat often is wicked believers. In verse 7, notice the cry of the wicked, saying, Nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. That doesn't sound like language from an outsider. The God of Jacob is covenantal language. This seems like someone on the inside thinking that they're getting away with this. Those who claim false belief in God are attacking the people of God with deception that God is not really present, or God does not really see sin or pay attention to it. This is done when a brother lies to another brother. People who are not caring, people who complain, not receiving the gifts of God with thankfulness like 1 Timothy 4 teaches us about. The gifts of marriage, the, gift of, the gifts of food, not receiving them with thanksgiving, but building a form of spirituality, thinking that we are better than what God can give us. They promote a mindset that God does not see. This is often seen in the movies that we watch. You see, we'll watch movies that promote sexuality in all of its forms. We'll watch movies that promote witchcraft and sorcery in all its forms. And yet we legitimize it by saying, well, it's just a fantasy land. This might just be aliens being immoral, whatever type of movie you're watching. Well, false gods are not real either, but yet we are condemned for having those as well. The selfishness we promote 
the pornography that is viewed, the believer, the professing believer, are full of deceptions when we are not obedient. The trouble here in all of this lies not necessarily with the presence of sin, because we all sin. But the problem here with professing believers who live this type of lifestyle is the absence of repentance. Are we deceiving ourselves? Autonomy is something that we also have to fight as former enemies of God. The psalmist is calling for the wicked to start living like the Lord has eyes to see. The Lord not only sees 2020, but sleep never overtakes his eyelids, nor does slumber imbibe his spirit. In verse 8, he's calling the wicked to pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless. When will you understand, you stupid ones? This is a proverb-like call to pay attention to Lady Wisdom, who God employed at the creation of the world. The God who creates all things is not limited in any way. In verse 9, he who planted the ear, can he not hear? He who formed the eye, can he not see? These abilities that God has are the very things that limit false gods. Psalm 115, idols have mouths, but they cannot speak. Idols have eyes, but they cannot see. Idols have ears, but they cannot hear. Idols have noses, but they cannot smell. Idols have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Now, God is a spirit in John 4 and has none of these physical body parts, but can accomplish every single task with ease. As a spirit, he has no mouth, but he speaks the universe into existence. As a spirit, he has no eyes, but there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Light and darkness are alike to him. He has no ears, but God hears the taunts of the wicked and listens to the cry of the helpless. He has no nose, but he can smell the sacrifices of the righteous. He has no hands, but he feels the needs of his people and reaches out to save with his right arm. God has no feet, but Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The voice of God causes even the mighty to seek shelter in the clefts of the rocks. And also those who trust in God will become like him, Christ-like. Additionally, if God goes out of his way to chasten the nations and uses even the great Nebuchadnezzar and the great Babylon to chasten Judah then why would he overlook your sin, which is easier to address? In verse 10, we have the high point of the psalmist reasoning, which solidifies everything that he set up to this point, removing all doubt. In verse 10, he says, even he who teaches man knowledge. Everything that man has or has the ability to do comes from God. So at the very least, he is not ignorant of your sin that you are so aware of. Now notice the progression of the reasoning here. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? This is an inductive argument. If God created your ear and your ear can hear, then God can also hear. The second one, 
He who formed the eye, does he not see? This is also an inductive argument. Again, even if your premise are true, your conclusion is not guaranteed. The argument would go like this. If God created your ear and your ear can see and your ear can hear, then God can also see and hear. He who chastens the nations, that's also an inductive argument. If God chastens the nations because of their evil, and you also are evil, then God will also chasten you. You see, the wicked love a good inductive argument as a means to cast doubt on a God who cares. To cast doubt on a God who judges. Do indeed inductive arguments leave room for God to fall short of deity? Can Satan legitimately make the case that eat to Eve that maybe God didn't actually say they would die? Does my unbelieving heart have a legitimate case that maybe God wasn't the answer to my prayer? Do my colleagues have a legitimate case that God may not actually care about whether I file my taxes or not? Does my conscience have a legitimate case that God doesn't care about the movies that I watch? All of these cases are inductive arguments. And therefore, they can have two legitimate premises without a guaranteed conclusion. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't see. So far, every one of the psalmist arguments have been inductive in nature as well. And Satan loves that. Maybe God doesn't chasten or care. Maybe life just happens the way it does without there being a spiritual reason. So why pressure yourself to be ethical or godly? Because both the righteous and the wicked die like the beast of the field. The Spirit of the Lord, who is aware of the wicked schemes of Satan, pulls out a deductive argument at the end of his logical reasoning and says, even he who teaches man knowledge. This deductive argument would go something like this. If man has knowledge and God teaches man all his knowledge, then God knows everything that man knows. Those two premises guarantee the conclusion. A deductive argument is not more true than an inductive argument, but is a stronger argument because if both premises are true, the conclusion is guaranteed. Now, I want to be clear about something. God does not need to use a deductive argument in order to be trusted. But for our sake, the psalmist employs this type of deduction as closure on any part of this argument that the enemy would attack. Satan and the wicked do not have a legitimate case against the caring, the judging, the all-seeing, the all-hearing, the all-knowing, the all-loving nature of God, because God is not a man, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are his ways our ways. God does not lie, and so there is no kind of reasoning that would ever jeopardize God's word as trustworthy. The Lord also knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. And even though God does not depend on a good argument to be vindicated, our fallen mind often needs help. For every inductive argument that the enemy uses to cast doubt on God, there is its opposite deductive argument securing the truth that we are hoping in. 
For every doubtful thought we have about God, his word brings our minds back to solid ground. Did God really say that Adam and Eve would die? Yes, and they did. Was it really God answering my prayers when we saw progression with Emmeline's help? Yes, because every good and perfect gift comes from above. Praise be to God for meeting us where we are. The chastening of the Lord, secondly, the second point today, the chastening of the Lord keeps you from being numbered among the wicked. In verse 12, blessed is the man whom God chastens. God is so gracious to his people to chasten them toward Christ-likeness. The perseverance of the saints has little to do with the saints and everything to do with God. He says, O Lord. Now, don't overlook this reference, O Lord, in the text. This reference allows us to cope with the chastening that we receive. This is the God of the covenant. This is our God. The chastening that he gives us is loving. What is the chastening from the Lord? To the believer, this is not punishment, but rather correction like a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Chastening also develops the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. I think our understanding of wisdom is often truncated. It's often shortened to what a full-orbed understanding of what it means to fear God. It does include a deep respect for God and who he is. But there's also a lot more to that. I think Isaiah helps us in Isaiah 8 and 9 with this understanding that the fear of God is actually a deep dread of God. Now, we're uncomfortable with that because typically the things that we're fearful of draw us away. But that's not who our God is. Like every good dad, I play the dad monster to my son Eli. You hide around the corner, you jump out, and you scare him out of his shorts. And you see, at times, this dread in his eyes. But I've noticed that every time I do that, when he is filled with fear and terror, he doesn't run from me. He runs to me. He knows that as his dad, whatever fear is feeling inside of him, the comfort he needs is by running to me, not away. That is the same sort of dread, fear that we need to be having for God, where although it's legitimate dread, it doesn't drive us away from God, it drives us to him. Because we know that God loves us, we know that God cares for us, we know that the answer to our problems lie with him. Trials are another aspect that God uses to chasten us. Health concerns, workplace trouble, family issues. James tells us to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Blessed is the man who you teach, God, out of your law. In verse 13, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. The Lord's judgment on the wicked seems to drag, but when it comes, it will be swift. The wicked will not only be sentenced to the grave, but to hell. Thirdly, today in the text, the help of the Lord gives rest to your war-conceived anxious thoughts. 
As we engage in spiritual warfare on a daily basis, God's word comes to bear through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches not new things, but reveals to us things that were already revealed in the Son. The content of the Son is found in the Scriptures. If rest comes to you, then that implies that you are actually reading your Bible. How many times are we filled with confusion, anxiety, fear, not knowing what God wants for our life, but we don't ever read our Bible? This lack of peace that we have, but we're not consistently in the text. That's how God ministers to you. That's how the Spirit ministers to you. The Spirit is not giving us new revelation, but confirming to us the revelation we already have. Blessed is the man whom God helps. As the people of God are ravaged on every side with atheistic and antichristic philosophies, God helps those who are in the mouth of the lion. Satan's power is astronomical in measure. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If God had not been my help, in verse 17, I would have dwelt in the abode of silence. This implies two things. The abode of silence being the realm of the dead, leading to the inability to praise God. This was one of the worst fears that the psalmist had. The psalms are a collection of praises. And if I am in the abode of the dead, which they often refer to as Sheol, I cannot praise you. If God had not helped me, I would be unable to praise you. In verse 18, even when I am the one who causes my grief, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. James states that the Lord will give wisdom to anyone who asks, and that without reproach. I love that text. The King James says, and he abradeth not. What in the world does that mean? God gives wisdom to those who ask, and that without reproach. That's good news. Because what that means is, no matter how many times I've failed... God doesn't hold it against me if I'm now asking for wisdom. That's the kind of God I need. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. While we were in the hospital, Jordan and I would take turns staying with baby Emily. Jordan was there most of the time, and she stayed overnight. She's more tough than me, number one. Number two... She's more medically trained than me, so she's able to interact with the nurses and doctors at a greater level than I can. And when I would go home at night and had the privilege of sleeping in my bed, there wasn't really much sleep to be had. Yes, I was the one at home, but my family was still in the hospital. But when I thought about God's goodness... And my anxious thoughts indwelled up within me. The consolations of God delighted my soul. And I thought about the scripture that says, God gives to his beloved even in his sleep. I didn't need to stay up and worry. God didn't need my help. My anxiety and fear did not help the situation because God would take care of me even in my sleep. When we were in the hospital, Brian, Pastor Brian was in Alabama 
but he called me like a good pastor. And we got to talking about the situation and I basically, obviously I trust the Lord, but I said, Brian, I don't really know what to trust the Lord for here. Brian said, well, we can trust that God is good. And that's absolutely true. But I still was having trouble grasping what that even means for my situation. Yes, God is good, but we're in the hospital. I believe he's good, but what does that mean for me? As we started praying, Brian said something that cut me quick. He said, Lord, you love Emmeline more than we do. Lord, you love Emmelyn more than Daniel and Jordan do. And as he said that, I just realized how little faith I have. Do I really think that my love for my family is greater than God? That's the goodness of God. Even in this situation, God loves her more than I do. And I'm worried about him caring for her. If you being evil, the New Testament says, and know how to good give, good give, give good gifts, how much more your Father who is in heaven? We are able to draw consolation from the Lord when we are filled with his word. We gain comfort knowing that no throne of destruction will ever be in alliance with God in verse 20. God will not allow the wicked to rise up against him in victory, nor will he allow professing believers to live wickedly under his name. Taking the Lord's name in vain is much more than just employing curse words. Taking the Lord's name in vain is so atrocious because it's literally people professing Christ and then living the opposite of Christ. They are taking his name in vain, illegitimately. Christians who disobey God as a way of life will never be numbered with the Lord's army. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Regardless of what you profess, many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things for you? But I will say, depart, for I never knew you. The wicked, in verse 21, band themselves together against the life of the righteous. But the righteous are safe from the ravaging of the wicked. As a believer, you have already been saved from your greatest threat. God himself. Why would you ever fear man whose life is in the breath of his nostrils? If God is for me, who can be against me? In Psalm 94, God's people are no more oppressed or rallied against than the Son of God in Psalm 2. Even though the innocent in Psalm 94 are condemned to death, the innocent one in Psalm 16 does not stay in the grave. Jesus is the only one, Jesus is not the only one to be risen from the dead, but rather is the firstborn among many brethren who will triumph over the enemies of God and over death itself. God becomes our stronghold when we unite ourselves to the only righteous one. And when we unite ourselves to Christ through repentance and faith, 
The God of the universe becomes my God. From that point on, my God becomes my refuge from any storm that the wicked can throw at me. Interestingly, God's help for the righteous is God's destruction of the wicked. God's judgment is not what the wicked expect. In verse 23, God brings back their wickedness upon him, upon them. The wicked are annoyed with God and deny him. But one of the worst things that can happen to a person is for God to give you what you want. The wicked desire evil. God will give it to them. The wicked desire the absence of God. He will remove his hand, Romans 1. The Lord our God will destroy them. The the legitimacy of the wicked's destruction rests with the one who holds life in his hand. God can let go of the wicked whenever he wants to. There is coming a day when God will vindicate his people. To the unbelievers who live as if there's no God, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. To the professing believer who lives in disobedience as if God does not see, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Our anxious thoughts are quieted ultimately because the Son will reign as king. Hebrews says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Your enemies are only defeated if you are united to Jesus. The reverse is also true. God is no longer your enemy if you are in Jesus. You see, we are all born into Adam as sinners and therefore as enemies of God. And we will remain enemies of God unless we unite ourselves in faith to the son that he loves. If you profess Christianity today, but live as if God does not see, then turn from your unbelief and fear the one who is coming to judge. Repent of your sins and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Professing that only Jesus can accomplish salvation for sinners. Unite yourself to Jesus this morning for the first time so that you can be allied with God's throne. And cry with the saints, here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. By night, the wicked vaunt, but dread will be their haunt. Because the judge does not sleep. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word that gives us consolation. Now, because your spirit and ultimate consolation, because you and your son are coming back. You, Lord, will judge the wicked. And you have a right to do that. But Lord, you also will save those who through faith trust in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.